Thank you, Ted. It's good medicine for the soul to be able to pray the words of the Lord, and not only to pray them, but to pray them to a God who is present and who hears. It's just been good, Ted, just to walk through those words of Scripture and come near to our Lord and Savior. Well, I want to begin uh, first, obviously, by thanking our Lord that once again we can gather together and... um, even though we're separated by a screen, we have the opportunity to draw near to Christ. And special thanks to, to Kevin Lee and, and Kat Lou for doing our, our streaming, for Chris Lim, who's come in this morning to help us uh, facilitate this service, and, and the elders as well. And I want to begin by saying how thankful to the Lord and how encouraged we are by the many acts of Christ-like love and mercy and grace that many of you have been extending to one another. Whether it be a bag of groceries at the door, whether it be a DoorDash meal for a needy member, or whether it's simply just a text or a prayer with your prayer buddy in your small group to encourage a brother or sister who's struggling or who's not feeling well. Um... These are things that are just bright lights in a dark time and at a time when our world has come to a halt and is struggling desperately to try and hold it together. These simple acts of loving one another as Christ has loved us point everyone to the good news of God's word. That Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord, is indeed alive and he is present and active in his local church And by His Spirit and by His Word, He continues to lead us and to care for His sheep using flawed and broken and sinful um, people like you and I uh, by faith and obedience to Him to carry on His work here. So thank you, brothers and sisters, for just being faithful to Christ and continuing to love one another amidst this difficult time. Well, this morning, ours is the privilege and joy, once again, of together, through His Word, drawing near to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our our great High Priest, the eternal and holy Son of God, the one who in love gave His life as a sacrifice for our sins. And He gave His life as a sacrifice for our sins, so that by faith, we might know Him, we might be one with Him, And we might draw near to Him. And to some degree we get a chance to do that again this morning. And this morning we draw near to our Lord and Savior through His words that are written for us in the book of Exodus. The God-breathed words of our Lord and Savior in Exodus that help us rightly understand these dark times. And I'm sure at this point many of you are scratching your head and saying, Why Exodus? What does Exodus have to do with a coronavirus, COVID-19 pandemic? Well, humor me for a little bit this morning. Exodus, as you know, is the second book of our Bible, the second book of Moses. And this word and this title, Exodus, comes from the Greek and Latin translations and The word exodus literally means the way out. Coming from the Greek word ex, which means out, from which we get that word exit. And the other half of the word haros, which is the Greek word for way or path. And put together, exodus literally means the way out or the path out. And if ever we need A way out or a path out now is certainly that time. And of course, this title comes as a testimony and a witness to the contents of the book of Exodus. The contents of the book of Exodus as they testify these God-breathed words to God's mighty act of salvation in providing a way out for his people, a way out of the bondage of slavery so that they might serve him And so that they might enter into a covenant relationship with him. So that they might be saved to be his people. 
And this morning, that's what we're going to consider. But very specifically, as we consider this testimony of the Lord God and His way out that He provides for His people in dark times. Very specifically in the book of Exodus, the Lord God uses not just one, but He uses a series of ten plagues in order to bring one of the greatest civilizations of the ancient Near East to its knees to make His name known and to bring His people out of the bondage of slavery and to save them. It's helpful to stop here for a minute to consider these words. They're old-fashioned words that we read in our Bible, plagues and pestilence. Those are not the words that we typically use in this day and age, but they are throughout our Bible, including the New Testament as well. But a plague in Scripture refers to a severe illness or a severe physical affliction or sometimes even a severe famine that affects an entire community. Severe illnesses or physical afflictions that affect an entire community, typically. And those are what we refer to today, typically, as epidemics. But in Scripture, the specific words for plague and pestilence, for plague, it's the Hebrew word for blow, as in a strike, as in a fist coming down on you. And the term for pestilence, quite literally, can mean sting. And together these words, plague and pestilence, refer to, within the context of Scripture, the blow or the sting that comes from God. It's a reference as we go through Scripture to a national or a global smackdown or discipline or a rod from the hand of the Lord. And of course, this is what Job is struggling with in the book of Job as he is beaten down by plague and pestilence and boils break out in his body and he suffers and he loses everything that he has. He is afflicted physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And Job knows in the bottom of his heart that the Lord God is sovereign and that this has come ultimately, even though he's not aware that Satan is the one who is actually carrying this out, he knows ultimately God is the only one who can give this command and give this green light. And so Job wrestles throughout the book of Job with the hand of God. Peter alluded to it this morning. And the journey and the path that God takes Job, ultimately which brings Job face to face with his Redeemer. Well, throughout Scripture, God repeatedly uses plagues, many far worse than the coronavirus, to humble rich and proud and idolatrous nations And to call his people to repentance and faith in him. And in short, God uses plagues to call all men to the only way out of his sure judgment against our sin. To point us to our need for a God who can truly save. And that only way out and the only God who can truly save is His Son, Jesus Christ. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But that crux, that climax in Scripture, ultimately where God sends His Son to die on the cross for our sins, so that whosoever should believe in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, this is what Exodus points us to. This is what we read about in John 14 today, and this is the testimony of the entirety of Scripture. That plagues come from the sovereignty of God and His Word. And they have a specific role and specific purpose. The book of Exodus begins first, however, with a very dark turn of events. It begins with the rise in Egypt of a powerful and proud and racist king who is determined to make his name and his nation great. And there's much suggestion that this Pharaoh belongs to the 18th dynasty of Egypt, a dynasty that was renowned for its military expansion and power, its strength, its economic riches, its sophistication in both its religion and its education. The 18th dynasty of Egypt at this time was indeed arguably the greatest civilization of the ancient Near East. And we wonder as we look at the profile of this Pharaoh 
whether on his crown he would have a make Egyptian people great again logo. Well, with the ascendancy of this new pharaoh, we read in those opening chapters of Exodus, with this rise of an aspiration for greatness came the politics of pride and fear, idolatrous racism, an idolatrous racism which focused on the immigrants who happened to be the Israelites. And it's worth noting, as we consider racism in the history of the world, its underlying heart and its pattern has never changed. Whether it be Hitler, whether it be Pharaoh, whether it be Japan during World War II, each of these paths and patterns, the fruit of idolatrous worship is always the same. It's the worship of ourselves. It's the worship of our idols. And it's the ascendancy of looking at ourselves as the best and entitled to the best and, and aspiring, that aspiration to believe that somehow we can be number one and control everything in the world. And with the ascendancy of this new Pharaoh, the focus of his ambition and the greatness of Egypt ends up focusing in on those immigrants, the sons of Israel. And as he focuses on the sons of Israel and the Hebrews, suddenly they become the problem in Egypt. They have become too successful. They have become too mighty. They have become too prosperous. And from this, Pharaoh discusses and leads his people in order to institute a brutal new program of slavery and oppression of the children of Israel. But in Exodus, God reminds us repeatedly that the greatest leaders and the greatest empires and the greatest idols of this world, none of them put together are greater than the God of the Bible, the one true God. And the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob is a holy God who loves his people with a holy love. And he remembers and he keeps not just some of his promises, but all of his promises to the last jot and to the last tittle, to the last stroke and to the last iota. And so in the opening chapters of Exodus, God, we read, raises up a prophet and a deliverer. And his name is Moses. And through a burning bush, he makes himself known to Moses. And then through Moses and his brother Aaron, the Lord God provides his people with a way out of their slavery. He hears their cries. We read of a God who is not separate and gone, who's not a watchmaker who's just wound up this clock to let it go. The Lord shows us that he is a God who hears the cries of his people and remembers his promises and his word. And so he sends Moses with his word to the children of Israel and also to Pharaoh to confront Pharaoh and to come and bring a plan of salvation for his people very specifically so that they might go and so that they might serve the God who loves them and who has set them free. Well, this brings us to Exodus chapter 9. And if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 9. And we'll read through this. And Exodus chapter 9 is partway through the series of plagues and series of confrontations that Moses brings to the attention of Pharaoh as well as the children of Israel. Exodus chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day, the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. 
And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. I want to draw your attention to something foundational that is here right at the very beginning of these God-breathed words. This passage, these plagues, all begin with the word of the Lord. Now I know that sounds obvious, but it's something that we miss. And in an era where a simple virus that we cannot see has brought this world to its knees, so to speak, It hasn't brought it to its knees in prayer. And what we so often forget is where everything in our world begins and ends. And very clearly in this passage through the word of the Lord, the Lord wants Moses to take his word to Pharaoh and make Pharaoh very much aware that everything, including these plagues, begin and end with the word of the Lord. And very specifically, the word of the Lord that clearly explains who God is, and what he wants. Exodus 9.1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Who God is, the great I am, who the Lord has revealed himself to, to Moses in the burning bush, and what God wants. Let my people go that they may serve me. And in other passages, that they may worship me. Brothers and sisters, the way out of darkness always begins with knowing who God is and knowing what he wants. The way out of the darkness always begins with knowing who God is and knowing what God wants. And the only place we can find who God is and what he wants is in his word. And that's why God in love has given us his word. And in verses 2 to 3, Moses tries to explain to Pharaoh that this is what all of these plagues are all about. These plagues are coming to show or to point the world to the word of God. What God is saying to the world so that the world might know who he is and so that the world might know what he wants and so that those who hear by faith and obey can be and will be saved by the mercy and grace of God. It says in verse 2, For if you, and that's Pharaoh, refuse to let them go, the children of Israel, the Hebrews, and if you still hold them, verse 2, Verse 3, behold, pay attention, Pharaoh, watch this. 
the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague or blow. The image that's conjured up here is of a hammer coming down and shattering a clay vessel. And this brings us to our first point for this morning. The Lord's plagues begin and end with his word. The Lord's plagues begin and end with his word. From the very, very beginning, the Lord God makes it explicitly clear through Moses. These plagues are not a random accident. They are not a natural disaster. They are a supernatural disaster. They are a sign and a wonder that come directly from the mouth of the Lord. And they are a devastating blow. There is no confusion here with the language that Moses uses and communicates to Pharaoh. This isn't, okay, here's a reminder, Pharaoh. They're not, okay, something's going to happen, pay attention. Very, very specifically when he says, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe blow or plague. Moses is letting Pharaoh and all the Egyptians and all the children of Israel know exactly what this is all about. That this begins from the mouth of God himself. The God of the Hebrews makes very clear who he is and what his name is. His name is Yahweh, the Lord, the great I am. And he makes clear through these words and through this plague that he is the one in charge, not Pharaoh, not Pharaoh's gods, not Pharaoh's idols, and not Pharaoh's pride. And his desire, as it always has been and always will be, is that this dark world would let his people go so that they might serve their Lord. God's desire has always been to be with his people. And he will stop at nothing to provide a way for his people, even if it means sacrificing the life of his own son so that they might be holy and so that he might dwell with his people. Well, this is what the plagues are all about. And in the end, even Pharaoh will serve the Lord. And as the Apostle Paul reminds us in Philippians, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Some will do it with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some will do it with rejoicing. But nonetheless, in the end, all will serve the Lord. And why is this the case? Because there is no power and there is no authority that is greater than the power and authority of the word of the Lord. This brings us to our second point for this morning. The Lord's plagues expose and humble Proud, hard-hearted idolaters. The Lord's plagues expose and humble proud and hard-hearted idolaters. It was generally accepted at this time, and Pharaoh, you can see the implications from the text, clearly believed this, that the office of the Pharaoh, or a Pharaoh, was considered to be the son of the gods. Or a representative of the gods. The pharaohs were considered to be semi-divine. The children of the gods. And yet at the same time the fathers of their nation or their ethnic people. And throughout history there were no shortage of leaders who stepped into this mindset and this idolatry. The idolatry of a leader being a god. And we see this in Rome and the emperor worship throughout the history of Rome. We see this also in many ways that were modeled by Hitler in Germany. And we see this also in World War II in Japan where the emperor has taken the role of being a son of God. But these are patterns, brothers and sisters, that are not just relegated to leaders. These are patterns that we see in our own hearts when we, like Pharaoh, refuse to let go of what rightly belongs to God. And among those things that rightly belongs to God is the control of our lives. And I say this as a former physician. 
and someone who's used to controlling things and who struggles very much with this idea of a life and a hospital and a family and a nation and a people that are out of control, whether it's biologically or spiritually or in any other way, shape, or form. But at the end of the day, the control of our lives belongs to our Creator. It belongs to the God, the great I Am. It does not belong to us. And this is something that Job had to learn the hard way. Job believed he was righteous. And he struggled with why the Lord's hand was heavy upon him. And eventually it brought him to the point where finally he sins in complaining and disgruntled because he's looking at his righteousness. And the kindness of the mercy of the Lord at the end shows Job, Job, what this is all about is that you would know who I am. That I reserve the right to do whatever is necessary so that my people might know me and love me and serve me in a way that is right and true according to my word. Brothers and sisters, any time we hang on to that control of our lives that rightly belongs to God, be sure we are walking down a path of idolatry that is not that much different than Pharaoh. Whether that control comes from our careers, our education, our churches, our ministries, our families, our money, or our education. But where does that take us, ultimately, with Pharaoh? Well, we see the heart of Pharaoh, do we not? When he speaks, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when Pharaoh speaks, we see the classic heart of the prideful and idolatrous hard heart. In Exodus 5.2, after Moses and Aaron first deliver the Lord God's command to Pharaoh. This is going back a little bit. Moses brings that petition in the beginning and says, let my people go. And he says so on behalf of the Lord. What is Pharaoh's response in Exodus 5.2? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh's saying something, a phrase that we're more familiar in the contemporary language of, or idiom of, who are you to tell me what to do? Who are you to tell me what to do? And it's something that we hear in countless places. Pharaoh will not be shepherded by Moses or the word of God. He does not know God. He refuses to know God. Why should he know God? And he has the heart that displays what we see in Proverbs. Fools who despise instruction. The fool in his heart has said there is no God. And over 3,500 years, little has changed. The heart of the fool, the heart of the idolater, the heart of the prideful man is the heart that refuses persistently to listen to the word of the Lord. The heart that rejects the messenger because it rejects the message. And this is exactly what Pharaoh did with Moses. Pharaoh did not need the Lord because he had his own God. He was himself a demigod. And it's worth looking a little bit at the gods in whom Pharaoh placed his trust and who he exalted. There, was, there were many gods in Pharaoh's life and in ancient Egypt. Many gods who they, create, who they credited with the wealth and success of Egypt. There was Hapi, H-A-P-I, not the rabbit, Hapi, the god of the river Nile, who had allegedly made Egypt rich. There was Ra, the sun god. And there was Sekhmet, the goddess of plagues and healing, who protected the health and the wealth of the nation. These were the gods to whom they offered sacrifices. These were the gods of which the royal family were members of the high priesthood. These were the gods in which the Pharaoh credited with the wealth of the nation. But the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, the God of the Hebrews, who are you? I do not know you. So in Exodus five, fourteen, the Lord gives Pharaoh an education in who he is. He gives Pharaoh a get to know you mixer. And there is nothing like a plague to help us to get to know who the God of the Bible is. And there is nothing like a near-death experience that lets us know who is really in charge 
of our lives and our world. It's not us. It's not our bank account. It's not our education or career. And it's not our ministry. This past week, one of the quotes that was repeated in many places on the media was Dr. Fauci's quote or his statement, which said, you don't make the timeline, the virus makes the timeline. And here, of course, he's making reference to many of our politicians and leaders' plans for us as far as when we're going to have an opportunity to end social distancing and when we will be able to gather in churches and resume our normal life. And we're humbled by this statement. You don't make the timeline. The virus makes the timeline. And the point, I believe that Dr. Fauci and the Centers for Disease Control and the NIH and many of the other physicians are making is, we're not really in charge here. We're managing. But at the end of the day, the virus is in charge. And so the question comes, who's in charge of the virus? Well, with these plagues, the Lord lets Pharaoh know who's really in charge of everything. And God sends not one plague, but he sends ten plagues. And each plague is preceded by the word of the Lord. And each plague exposes a specific Egyptian god as a useless fraud and lie. The first plague turns the Nile's water to blood, making it undrinkable. And he shows Hopi, the god of the Nile, to be a lie and a fraud. And in chapter 9, as we come back to chapter 9, verse 8 through 12, this plague of boils, this plague of boils, the blistering of the skin, it shows Sekhmet, the goddess of plagues and healing, to be a fraud and a lie. And from plague 1 through 10, the Lord God, blow by blow, shows the Egyptians that everything that they have placed their pride and confidence in is a worthless lie. They are unable to protect the Egyptians against the word of the Lord. And yet, despite these vivid testimonies and disciplines from God, Pharaoh repeatedly refuses to listen and obey God. He refuses to let the people go. And from Exodus to Romans 1 and 2, always the pattern of proud and idolatrous and hard hearts remains the same. And the Hebrew word that's used for this hardened heart, there are two of them that are used. And the one refers to strength. It's the idea of resistance. And the other that's used here is the term for heaviness. This idea of being slow to move. When we talk with our boys, we try to teach them about obedience. And one of our our sayings in our home, to obey is to do it. I hope Ethan and Josh are listening right now so they can finish my sentence. To obey is to do it right away. And we're trying to teach our boys that it's the heart and spirit with which you obey. We're trying to teach them what pleases the Lord is a soft heart. This idea that it's not heavy. It's not resistant. It's not, okay, I have to do this. Okay, I'll do it in a few minutes. Okay, maybe I'll do it next time. It's this idea of a soft heart, a light heart, a heart that is sensitive to the Lord's saying in his word and will be quick to do what he says, not slow, not like some 500-pound weight that takes forever to move from one end of the room to the other. And this is the imagery that's used by these Hebrew words that describe the nature of Pharaoh's heart. And sadly, it doesn't just describe Pharaoh's heart, it describes the hearts of many people when it comes to the word of the Lord or shepherding from the Lord's shepherds. Slow, resistant to move, never really quite getting there because something else is pulling their heart in a different direction. Well, the question arises as we come to verse 12, and it says, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Well, the question comes up here. Who's responsible for this hard heart? Is it God or is it Pharaoh? Okay, And your homework this week is to go through Exodus and circle with your pencil every time the term harden or hardened is used. And in 
Romans 1 and 2, your homework is to go through and read that and consider what Paul has to say in Romans 1 and 2 and Romans 9 about God hardening hard hearts. Who is responsible for this hard heart of Pharaoh that refuses to listen? The classic hard heart, which repeatedly goes through. The hard heart that refuses to listen and refuses to let go. Okay? Who's responsible for this hard heart? And the simple answer is both God and Pharaoh. As you read through the testimony of God's word, God ultimately claims responsibility as he does in Chapter 9, verse 12, for hardening Pharaoh's heart. God is sovereign. Even as Ted prayed for us this morning and talked about the Lord guiding the streams of the king's heart. But Exodus eight fifteen and 32, God also says that Pharaoh hardened his heart and he did not listen. And the Lord in the testimony of Exodus, as we go back to the beginning, shows us that long before Moses appeared, the natural condition of Pharaoh's heart was one of sinful pride and idolatry and resistance to the word of the Lord and the people of God. And we're reminded of the commandment that comes in Hebrews chapter 3. Do not harden your hearts. Exhort one another daily that none of you may be hardened By the deceitfulness of sin. And so we see that God ultimately is responsible. But the state of our hearts from the beginning is one of deceitfulness. Deceitful desires. What we've talked about in Ephesians. The deceitfulness of the flesh of hard hearts that are hard towards God. And as we come to Romans 1, 18-32. The Apostle Paul shows that God's just judgment against Proud and idolatrous hearts. God's just judgment against proud and idolatrous hearts is to harden them even more. Giving these hearts over to their sinful and idolatrous desires. What Ephesians refers to as the deceitful desires of the heart. And we see this everywhere. We see this throughout scripture and we see this throughout the history of the world where God gives a people over when they have determined not to follow the Lord and the hardness of their heart. He gives them over and he hardens their heart and he allows them to get what they want. He allows them the desire of their hearts that they would become gods and he shows what monsters we really are and he allows us to see the level of destruction that comes when we get our own way and we refuse to hear and follow the Lord. Our judgment is to get what we want. Well, in this way, the Lord God, as we see the trajectory of Pharaoh and the hardness of his heart, hardened heart that is hardened even more by the Lord, the Lord God shows all of us that we are not God, that no man can rescue himself from his own depravity and hardness of heart. Try as we might, Work harder as we might, we cannot save ourselves, that there is only one who can save. And there is only one way out. And the only one who can save us is the Lord. And the only way out is the way of His Word. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. The Lord's plagues call all men to repent and know Him as the only true God and Savior. The Lord's plagues call all men to repent and know Him as the only true God and Savior. In verse 14 of chapter 9, the Lord Himself explains to Pharaoh exactly why He's sending these plagues, and He also explains exactly why He is hardening Pharaoh's heart. Verse 14, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, and on your servants and your people. So that. Okay, anytime we see those words, so that, God is giving us his purpose or his intent. So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Why does he send plagues? He's making clear what we could never know and what we don't want to know. We would like to be the only one on the face of the earth. That's fueled every romantic comedy since the beginning of time. That you could be that only one who's loved 
200% by everybody else in the room. The one and only. But here the Lord says, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Brothers and sisters, in our lives, does God reign supreme? Is there no one like him in your heart and in your life and in your home and in your family? Are there no competitors in your life for his glory? Brothers and sisters, that's the only way we truly enjoy the beauty and greatness of who God is and how wonderful and awesome his love is when there are no competitors in our lives. We think of that, and we know what the reality of this is, brothers and sisters, in our marriages. What would it be like if I said to Julie, well, Julie, there are three or four other competitors in my life. You're not the one and only wife. There's ministry. There's the elder board. There's my single friends. I mean, you'd be horrified by that. And yet we know that those are the struggles in many marriages. We know that's a struggle where wives have said, your career comes before me. Or where husbands have said, the children come before me. We know that in love, it does not work if there are others. And God is a God of love who has a holy love. And his desire for us is we would know that holy love to the fullest. And for us to know that holy love to the fullest, there can be no other competitors because the truth of God's word is, he indeed is the one and only, and there are none like him in all the earth. Then as we come to verse 15, he continues to explain. The Lord says, for, an explanatory term, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, with the deathly sting. And this recalls to our mind 2 Peter where Peter tells people that the reason God has not come back and the tribulation hasn't happened and Jesus hasn't come again, it's not because God is lazy or tearing or slow or he's absent. The reason God hasn't come and given us what we justly deserve and has not burned us all with his holy wrath is his desire is that we might repent. And God is here showing showing Pharaoh how gracious and merciful he's actually been to Pharaoh. He could have put out his hand and struck him down with all his people with pestilence, but he didn't. Instead, he has shown a mercy and grace. He says, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Brothers and sisters, we were talking this morning among the elders, and Peter was reminding us this morning that COVID-19, as horrible as it is, and as many deaths as it is, and we need to pray for those people in New York, and we need to pray for the people in Italy, and our hearts need to break for those who are suffering. But we were reminded this morning in our elders' time together that it's still small in comparison to what happened in the Spanish flu, where millions died. And the only reason it's not worse, brothers and sisters, is God is showing us mercy and grace so that we might turn to him in repentance and know him, the God who loves us and desires to be with us. Verse 16, but for this purpose, I have raised you, Pharaoh, up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Brothers and sisters, these plagues, they were not just given to punish and humble Pharaoh and Egypt. They were signs and wonders that were to point all men and the entire earth to the word and salvation of the only God who can save us. Old Testament scholar D.T. Stewart says, quote, The plagues showed the way to salvation by forcibly calling people's attention to the God who saves. The plague showed the way to salvation by forcibly calling people's attention to the God who saves. And brothers and sisters, many of you know this firsthand. You've been through it. 
where a trial or a tribulation has come, where there's been a death in a family member or something severe has happened, and the Lord has used it as a wake-up call, not to be unkind and not to punish, but to draw your attention and let you know and get your eyes back to opening the Word of God and to be in prayer on your knees and to know the God who loves you and has saved you for Himself. And as we continue to read, the Lord God shows His people, these plagues have been given just as much for Israel, the people of God, as for Egypt. So that forever they would remember and know it wasn't the gods of Egypt or the gods of the nation that saved them. It was the Lord, the great I Am. And nowhere is this more important and more obvious than in the tenth and final plague where the Lord God will rightly and justly slay the firstborn of the entire land, except for those who by faith have listened and obeyed to the word of the Lord. And they've listened and obeyed by coming under the blood of his unblemished lamb. And in this way, this final plague, the plague of the Passover lamb, points all men, to God's Son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who on the cross bore the plague and sorrow and grief we deserve. The Lamb of God who on the cross was pierced and crushed by God for our iniquities. The Lamb of God who shows that we cannot save ourselves, either from the coronavirus or our sin. But the Lamb of God who in love gave His life so that we might have a way out of this darkness. Last week, Anne Applebaum wrote an article in the Atlantic Monthly entitled, The Coronavirus Called America's Bluff. The Coronavirus Called America's Bluff. And in it, she makes this observation. Quote, Epidemics have a way of revealing underlying truths about the societies they impact. Epidemics have a way of revealing underlying truths about the societies they impact. The United States, long accustomed to thinking of itself as the best, the most efficient, and most technologically advanced society in the world, is about to be proved an unclothed emperor. What does she mean by that? She's alluding to that story where the emperor becomes a joke. And this was written a week prior to us reaching that great status of being number one as far as confirmed cases of COVID in the world. And these observations, I don't necessarily know. I don't know what um, Ann Applebaum's religious background is. But we're seeing in this day and age where even unbelievers realize that there's more to this than meets the eye, brothers and sisters. And we need to stop and ask ourselves as we come to God's word. What is this all about? Clearly, we must make this distinction. COVID-19 is not the equivalent of the 10 plagues in the Old Testament. The ten plagues in the Old Testament, excuse me, were signs and wonders specifically tied to the word of the Lord to show that that was a supernatural disaster in that point in time for a one-time event. We also know that narrative is descriptive and not prescriptive. It's not like we're supposed to go to Exodus and take specific things that, that Moses did, whether throwing staffs down or confronting people or all of those things. It's not prescriptive. And yet, what Exodus has given to us, it's given to us, as Paul says, as an example, to show us the God who reigns, to show us the principles by which he reigns, and to show us the desire of his heart. And from that, we can come and say that all of the things that we are experiencing, brothers and sisters, they come from the hand of the Lord, but they're pointing us in a direction. They're pointing the people of God in a direction to a God who loves his people, to a God who has already on this side of the cross, provided a way out of the darkness. The question is, will we be like the children of Israel? Will we listen and obey and follow his command? Or will we be like Pharaoh and say, who is this God? I do not know you. 
And will we refuse to let go of the things that the Lord is trying to call our attention to? That there are things in our lives, brothers and sisters, during this time and this era that the Lord is calling us to pay attention to and calling us to let go and to give them up to Him. Let me close with this final application request. Would we take time to meditate on the good news of the gospel? For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that perish, of course, that the Lord is talking about is eternal life. Not just necessarily death here, but to know and love and to be with God now and forever because our sins are dealt with. Would you take time in the midst of all the craziness of this world to focus on the good news of Jesus Christ, of how great our God is, how there is no one like Him, how there was... There is no love that is like His love and His desire for our lives that we might be set free from our sins so that we could serve Him and worship Him and be with Him now and forever. Brothers and sisters, that is the guiding lamp and light now and always. And as you meditate on the good news of how great God's love is that He would sacrifice His own Son to be our Passover Lamb, to take the plagues that we deserve. Please consider what are the areas of our hearts that are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? What are the idols of our lives that until now we've been reluctant to let go of? Where are the places that we need to start listening to God and maybe listening to the messengers that God has put in our lives? Be they our wives, be they our children, be they our co-members. And finally, brothers and sisters, would you take time as you meditate on these things this week, to take time to be still and know that He is God, to pray and thank Him for His love for you in the midst of these times, and to pray to the Lord that He would give us hearts of belief and repentance that we might trust in His goodness and grace in the midst of the storm. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what a great Savior You are, our Passover Lamb. You bore the bruises and the blows and the stings and the strikes that we deserved. May we not miss this opportunity to draw close to You, to listen to You, To rejoice that there is no one like you in all the earth. And may our homes and our lives be filled with the joy of the good news of the gospel. A people who have been set free from the darkness and have been given a way out of the darkness of this world. May that be, Lord Jesus, our joy and our hope. And may we share it, Lord, with a world that so desperately needs it. In your name we pray. Amen.